MailChimp presents. As a marketer, you're speaking to a vast audience. Some people need to be converted into customers, some need to be reunited with their carts, and others have just made a purchase. But when you fail to segment your audience and personalize your messaging, you can get what's called a customer. One big cluster of customers who may seem alike, but actually all have different behaviors. So how do you turn those customers back into customers? With Intuit MailChimp, you can use personalization tools that segment customers into groups, break them up into like-minded target audiences, and send them personalized marketing. Intuit MailChimp, the number one email marketing and automations brand. Based on competitor brands' publicly available data on worldwide numbers of customers in 2021 and 2022. Availability of features and functionality vary by plan, which are subject to change. Hello there, listener. I'm Paul Jarvis, and you're listening to Call Paul. Currently, I'm the co-founder of Fathom Analytics, a privacy-focused website analytics company. I've also run a bunch of small businesses for the last 20-plus years, and I wrote Company of One, a book about intentionally growing a small business. Most businesses exist to solve a problem. Some problems are convenience-based, while others have much higher stakes. People taking on the latter don't just need a quick fix or a temporary solution. They're motivated by long-lasting change so that maybe one day they don't actually need to exist. As business owners, I think we could all learn a thing or two from how these organizations work and operate because it really makes it easier to make decisions when you're able to filter them through whether or not it serves your mission. Entrepreneurship for me, and this is just my own perception, has that sort of feeling of like going it alone. For me, I think part of that was just that sort of solo vision, solo mindset where one of my coworkers once said, you know, just very simply, like for us, the mission is the leader. Um, and that just felt so beautiful to me. That's Laura Hackney, CEO and co-founder of Annie Cannons. She saw a huge problem. Survivors of human trafficking and gender-based violence didn't have support after their rescue. So her and her team developed both a training curriculum as well as a way for these people to get real-world paid experience, which typically is the start of a long-lasting career. What we were seeing is cycles of exploitation. Someone was in a situation of exploitation, they were able to get out or there was some sort of intervention that helped them get out. They might be able to access certain resources when it comes to things like crisis support or counseling or short-term housing. Um, But we were hearing from so many people that without long-term economic stability, people were just being stuck um, in these cycles and they were continuing to be vulnerable, oftentimes from situations completely outside of their control. And, And we started having a lot of these conversations around how we could help someone make their own career um, that would provide flexibility and choice and agency and would be, you know, sustainable um, for themselves, for their families. Um, What was something that someone could learn without necessarily a four-year degree? And at that time, 
coding boot camps were popping up all over the Bay Area. So we really started looking at software and then it was suddenly like, well, if you have 20 grand, you can join one of these boot camps. <laughs> and we were like, oh, interesting. Um, so we started looking at the curriculum and we had a number of folks who were really interested in helping us think about how we can make those curriculum more accessible. Um, and bring more people into the tech space. And so not just teaching coding, but teaching sort of the whole industry. What what are the different roles? Where does code sit in this sort of larger ecosystem? We started looking at how we could really provide that journey for someone, and then also started seeing how we could um, sort of have more of those conversations around how technology and teaching of technology could change. Can you tell me the story about the name? Tell me how... Annie Cannons came about um, and why it's called Annie Cannons, please. Annie Cannon um, was actually a woman in the early 20th century who was hired with a number of other women by a Harvard astrophysicist to do what he thought was going to be sort of very simple data entry type work. He actually called them computers, um, which I always thought was really interesting. Um, <laughs> And they ended up discovering the life cycle and composition of stars. They ended up creating a stellar classification system. They made all of these huge discoveries. And it's it's fun to talk about now, especially when the James Webb telescope has just launched and we're getting, or not just launched, but we're getting all the pictures. We're getting the good photos uh, now. Yeah. Exactly. And, and Annie was really all about bringing more people into that space and keeping them there, even though they were told over and over again to go home and there was no space for them in, in STEM fields. So we just like the idea of people who are potentially undervalued by society being able to make all of these advancements in a field like this. Um, and so it really being about people's potential and their future and not as much about their past. I love that. Yeah. It's so fitting. Yeah. How do you think Annie would feel about the current state of STEM? Like, do you think that Ooh. she would feel that there's progress that's been made or that there's still so far to go or somewhere in between? That's a great question. We've we've um, gotten a hold of a lot of her like journal entries and things like that. And she was just no nonsense. She was just get the nonsense out of here. Just let me do my work. Just let other people do their work. Um, so I, I don't know. I feel like she would just, um, she would probably just say, just keep plowing through. She also joked that it helped that she was um, partially deaf. So when she would hear the criticism and, and, you know, people saying you shouldn't be, she was just like, oh, I just, I just didn't hear any of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, I would say that she would just say, you know, keep going and, and just get rid of the nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So I'm curious about the intersection because there's a lot of folks that work in tech. There's a lot of folks that work on the nonprofit side with human trafficking and domestic violence, but you have like, these are, like combined together. So I'm curious, I guess, how you got into the intersection of the two and then how you made it make sense enough to build something like Annie Cannons into, into the thing that it is now. Yeah. Technology really, I think in the beginning was viewed as the vehicle to, to help individuals rebuild, rebuild their lives, their careers. One of the things I'm really excited about right now is We've been developing as a teaching tool, you know, helping people come up with their own ideas for software um, as a way to teach, you know, MVP and, and all the different parts of the software development lifecycle. And people have come up with extraordinary ideas. Um, and one of them has been about 
there has to be a better way to connect survivors to service providers. Um, so when you hear about all of these different technology products that are, you know, so driven by human centered design and those types of things, one of the biggest challenges in, in this space is how to connect people with resources that they're actually eligible for. One thing is making sure that a survivor doesn't have to retell their story over and over and over again to every single service provider they go to. Um, so we've been working on a product that allows them to enter their data one time that shows them the, all the organizations they're actually eligible for. They can search for things and then they can actually submit their intake form to that organization. And they can also choose to remove access to that data. Um, so it's a, you know really focusing on how can an individual control their data in this ecosystem, which really hasn't existed before. Um, so those are the types of things that I get really excited about. We're using technology, but with the lens of, of privacy and confidentiality and being survivor informed. So that's where the intersections have been really interesting. That's amazing. I like it, especially I work in um, digital privacy. And that was something that I, I hadn't thought about previously is a lot of shelters use our software because they want to protect the privacy and confidentiality of, of the people that use those shelters. But now that that's come up, it's it's been, yeah, it's been really eye-opening, eye-opening and really interesting to see how applicable something like privacy and confidentiality is to... Mm-hmm so much and to to so many so many areas of of different people's lives i'm curious is annie cannons a non-profit or a a business or how how does the structure of it work and how's it set up uh yeah we're a non-profit um through and through yeah so we our programs are really all about that individual's journey from you know intake referral all the way to employment. When we were first starting, it was wonderful in terms of being set up in that way. We always knew we wanted to have a piece of what we did that provided people with that real on-the-job experience. We really viewed it as a sort of like the driver's ed class. Like you take the, you, you're in the classroom, but until you're actually driving the car, um, mm-hmm. you can't really get that that full experience. We always wanted to have a place where people could go in a supportive and trauma-informed environment to really learn those skills and hone those skills and build their portfolios. Because um, really we were seeing and hearing from folks who'd gone through boot camps that were sort of hitting a wall of, I've been learning these skills, but I don't really have a, a lot of project work that I can show for it in my interview and, and those types of things. And so we've been trying to bring in that piece of it as well as mentors and, and giving people the experience of, um, you know, their, their LinkedIn profiles and, and interviewing skills and, and all of those types of things. And the curriculum now versus what it was when we started is completely different, <laughs> uh, which is great because it just reflects how everything changes in technology. Yeah. I guess because, you, because it's a nonprofit, do you consider yourself an entrepreneur or do you consider, is there like a better, more fitting title for, 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 your, for the role that, that you have? I remember um, a couple years ago, I felt like that word was being used so much, like entrepreneur and um, and founder, like all these words had all of this huge weight. The word that sort of came to mind first was, was advocate, where, you know, you're able to um, create create such a space that people are able to step into it um, and, and, you know, fully actualize their potential and their curiosity and um, their skill sets. And then they in turn 
do the same thing. And it just continues over time. I haven't been someone that has that sort of, you know, we have to get to exactly a certain number of people served or exactly, you know, this budget number that we have to be completely focused on, you know, delivering this product and reaching this many users. And I know I'm being, this is like a hyper generalization of what an entrepreneur is. Um, but for me, it's so much about the connection with other people. And I feel like entrepreneurship for me has that sort of feeling of like going it alone. And, and I think, and, and Hopefully that can change and hopefully we rewrite the word. One of my coworkers once said, you know, just very simply, like for us, the mission is the leader. Um, and that just felt so beautiful to me because it was like, yeah, we're all here to serve this purpose. And then of course, as, as any, as I think most nonprofits, the, the dream is, is that you're solving or helping to solve a lot of that systemic cause of the problem. Um, so you're ending those cycles of exploitation. You're helping you know, individuals who have this incredible potential then, you know, lead their own initiatives and, and move forward. So eventually, you know, you don't need to exist. I guess that's how, I guess that's how it differs from business where if, if all goes according to plan, you aren't needed anymore. And that's like the best possible solution. <laughs> yeah. So how have other tech companies responded to the work that you're doing at Annie Cannons? Were you met with skepticism? Were there gates you had to crash through? When we went out to talk to funders, there was a lot of like, that seems too complicated or too hard, or there, there are probably too many problems. And haven't people been through too much? They probably can't even be, et cetera, et cetera, right? The conversations that we're having with tech companies now versus six, seven years ago, are so different and it's so lovely. There's so much more of a, um, how do we create a better environment, a better you know, culture for bringing more people into our engineering teams or other teams throughout the company that I, you know, before we were getting like, oh, I love what you're doing, but I need to hire a real developer kind of thing. Um, like that was a direct quote <laughs> that I'll carry with me. So I think that's been the gate in, in some ways or sort of the, I would say maybe like unconscious bias um, is maybe maybe better than gate that we've been seeing for a while. And then, you know, now in terms of talking to, to tech companies, it's sort of figuring out who's um, who's sort of really invested um, in this work and then sort of being that partner with us moving forward. And I think too, that's not really in people's fault in a lot of ways. I think that a lot of the media, I think how anti-trafficking, how you know, survivors are portrayed has been deeply problematic for a long time. I mean, you, you look at images, you'd see just, you know, very, you know, horrible images of individuals with like, you know, their mouths covered or like, you know, chains and ropes and all these kinds of things. And the reality is much more complicated. How do we as a society want to be able to think about anyone at work, um, anyone being successful at work, people who have experienced significant trauma, but have overcome it in so many different ways. And then have on top of that learned a very hard skill. Like I can't think of anyone you'd want to have more on your team um, than someone who's been able to do those things. But it's still, people still kind of come in with the, you know, I saw that Liam Neeson movie. Is that what we're talking about? You know, and, and so anyway, it's just kind of trying to fight, I think some of that, um, that bias that still exists. So then how do you fight this? Like, how do you rewrite that narrative? Yeah, it's it's kind of like being like Annie, <laughs> just being like, no, I'm not going to listen to the nonsense, um, and just keep just keep building the thing, or just keep 
just keep training. And, and for people, you know, who are going through our programs as well, um, it's, you know, the number of times I think we use the phrase, just keep swimming. <laughs> and I think over time, for, for a number of reasons, we found that we don't just want to be the only place where people can, can work, as well as we're starting to connect with more and more companies who are really trying to create really sort of welcoming and inclusive environments. Um, so we've, we've sort of said, all right, now we can shift away from this idea where everyone has to kind of um, either be at any cannons or be doing their own thing, but really how do we, um, you know, start to embrace those companies who are asking the hard questions and doing a lot of that hard work. I think it's an exciting time because there's less of that need to feel like um, we have to create something insular and more of the need and, and the desire to, to help people sort of carve those paths and, and, and have conversations with tech companies around what we've learned at any cannons in terms of best practice um, in terms of, you know, what can happen when trauma comes up in the workplace, because we've all experienced trauma in some form, um, especially after the last two years. And so how can you put things in place to really support people and, and bring out their best work? Hey, I wanted to pause for a quick break. If you're enjoying this season of Call Paul, you'll love a small business story from our friends at Courier, a magazine about working better and living smarter. Running a global nonprofit and a cookware brand would typically require very different resumes, but Shiza Sahid isn't a typical business founder. Not only is she the co-founder of cooking equipment brand Our Place, which is famed for its multi-use always pan, but she previously ran Malala Fund, an international organization, as she's a mentor and friend to Nobel Peace Prize winner Malala Yousafzai. But for Shiza, there's a natural flow between these two sectors. It's just about where she can make the most difference and how she can make an impact with every business decision. For the full story, head to couriermedia.com. And if you want more stories like this, you can sign up for their weekly newsletter at couriermedia.com email. I can't imagine but it seems like working in the realm of human trafficking and domestic violence survivors could be kind of heavy, like for you and for the people that work there personally. So I'm, I'm wondering, like, are, are there any practices or things that you have in place to take care of your own mental health or the staff who, who work, who work there? I think we can always be doing more, but we have a wonderful practitioner who comes in and works in our staff and does a lot of embodied empowerment. So kind of thinking about how things are affecting you and how that's manifesting physically. Um, and then starting to develop a language internally around things like um, your window of tolerance. Um, so basically like given all the things happening in your world, sort of how much are you able to deal with in a given day when it comes to your work? And so just creating a lot of that language um, and then especially supporting our teaching team and making sure that when things come up in the classroom that they have what they need to feel supported through other team members. Um, so both understanding that they're gonna have such a wide range of understanding and empathy of what someone could be going through, but then also making sure that those things aren't also triggering and that they can come up with a shared language for I just need to step away for a moment. Mm -hmm. um, and those types of things. And then I think we also have what I like to call magical pivots. 
um, where every Monday morning we'll have a check-in where everyone goes around and just says how they're doing, how their weekend was, anything that's sort of on their mind. And, and for some folks we've heard in the past, that's sort of like the one time they've had a group of people just very actively focused on them and, and like what's happening in their lives and, and that that's a really meaningful space to hold for people. I feel like it gives me um, a new appreciation of the like Monday morning check-ins with folks because like we do <laughs> we do that um, with my business and it's usually just like let's just like be human beings and like catch up for a couple minutes but yeah there's yeah it, it can definitely be a lot more in a, in a positive way. So I really like that. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm someone who just loves hobbies. I love hearing about other people's hobbies, I try to encourage that as much as possible. And so just kind of creating that space too, where people can talk about, you know, what they're really interested in as well, what they, what they nerd out about. Um, it's also really great to help with that heaviness that can sometimes come up um, when you're working on various things. I got to ask now, what are you nerding out about at the moment? <laughs> <laughs> Oh gosh, uh, it, I'm taking an astrophysics class, which has been super fun. Um, learning a little bit of Icelandic, very random, very wonderful. <laughs> Maybe I'm jaded because I've been in tech and been unhappy with not tech because I love tech, but been unhappy with the industry for so mm -hmm. long. And I've heard so many horror stories of marginalized folks who have worked for big tech companies and ended up having to leave. I'm curious what your thoughts and feelings are on the tech industry and if you have um, hope for it in any way. <laughs> when you think about any industry, there's going to be people where you're like, I'd love to work with you. I would never work with you. Um, I really like that product. I think that product is hurting humanity. <laughs> and I think too, also having moments of like checking my own privilege around certain types of companies or certain types of jobs for people are going to mean so much um, for that individual, for their families or something like that, or it's going to open doors for them to be able to do different things. Having more people with different lived experiences, making decisions about products, about culture and those types of things are gonna make a huge difference. I guess I would say I'm, I am more optimistic, but I also know there are certain paths that are currently being walked down by certain mm -hmm. companies that I, I just think are um, in, my, in my private heart, I hope kind of crash and burn. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm with you yeah. on that and tech <laughs> will not solve every problem that we have in fact it is the reason why some problems exist absolutely absolutely you, yeah. so i guess what advice would you have for tech companies to be better <laughs> like i don't even know how to word it but like to to be and 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 to do better i mean one of the things that i feel like is going to be most important is the is the listening piece is is and and I know that that sounds you know very simple um but it's it's that being able to listen to people who are who might not necessarily have access to all of the different doors of power at 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 any given moment and I think that's something that's changing now because there are ways for people to voice you know, their experiences that haven't existed before that's sort of forcing people to listen. But then there's sort of the unfortunate reaction to that, which is either 
getting defensive or feeling like, okay, we just need to check boxes. We had a couple conversations with some larger companies where we were saying, you know, your job descriptions still say a requirement is a four-year computer science degree. How is that possible? <laughs> How does that still exist in your and and the barriers that are being created unintentionally from that? And you're keeping a lot of people out that could otherwise really meaningfully contribute to your company. And so just being willing to to analyze a lot of those things and and to think about them and and to shift and and just those conversations around like one that sort of idea that only a certain type of person can learn tech um, absolutely has to change. I know we talked about in the beginning, like if all goes according to plan, any cannons won't exist because it won't need to exist. But is there anything else like as far as the future state of any cannons that you see or that you you want to see happen with the work that you're doing? We have very small cohorts. We're really focused on the individuals going through our program. It's not about you know, how many sort of one-off things can we provide for as many people as possible? It's about how, you know, can we help someone through their transformation? How can we continue to to grow to be able to support the people who are, you know, sort of knocking at the door, not only for their own careers and, and you know, the financial support for themselves and their families, but also for the communities. And I think that in the long term, that's how you really address exploitation. It's by making sure that communities that have been made vulnerable from bad policies or discrimination or things like that, that have um, you know the resources and the support to be able to uh, to not have to be stuck in in those cycles anymore. Um, so for me, that's that's what we're we're driving toward. I'm ready for that. What's next? I've been thinking a lot about Annie Cannon's The Human since we talked with Laura. What does she think of the world now? Progress has been made since the late 1800s, but at the same time, we still have things like gender and racial pay gaps and inequality, especially in STEM. The same flawed thinking that leads to gender inequality in the workforce can lead to gender-based violence globally. It's two sides of the same inequitable coin. Sometimes focusing on solving the issues in front of us first, within our organizations or industry, can have broader reaching effects on the world at large. Annie Cannon's mission is to end cycles of violence on a large scale, but they have also ended up changing the culture in STEM too. Sometimes problems are so big, I find it hard to have hope. But it does feel possible to take small actions. Our organizations and society in general are just better when we consider more diverse perspectives. This isn't just the altruistic thing to do. It's good business, period. Next week, I'm chatting with the co-founder of a privacy-focused analytics company. Um, my privacy-focused analytics company. I hope you'll join us. Call Paul is a MailChimp original podcast. The show is made possible with the help of the whole amazing team. Julie Douglas, Ruth Eddy, Sasha Brown, Tierra Darnell, 
Kaida Hazes, and Zoe Culkin. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast player so you can check out all of our other episodes and seasons. Oh, and if you want more awesome podcasts, go to MailChimp.com presents. Some things leave you guessing, like, why are there five syllables in the word monosyllabic? But you know who doesn't leave you guessing? MailChimp. MailChimp analyzes data from billions of emails to offer up personalized recommendations for how to improve things like your email content and audience targeting. Guess less and sell more with the number one email marketing and automation brand, Intuit MailChimp. Based on competitor brands' publicly available data on worldwide numbers of customers in 2021 and 2022.